Well, as I said earlier, we're going to talk about the subject of worship today. We get some lights up, so if anybody is, wants to use their Bible, we'll be able to see the page. So turn a few lights on in the, in the sanctuary for that. We're going to look at the story of the, I almost said it, of the, I almost said three wise men. We're going to look at the story of the wise men today, and because in the story of the wise men, worship is first mentioned in the New Testament, so I, I think it's important. And so there are some things that I want to learn about how the wise men worshipped. And this is not an all-inclusive, obviously, teaching on worship, but there are some things that the wise men did that we can certainly, can certainly learn from. And it is really hot up here today. So, Anybody else warm? Yeah. All right. Anybody, anybody cold? All right. Switch places. Uh, it is warm. Uh, so let's, uh, let's lose the coat. I do have a t-shirt on, so it could go one more layer, need be. We won't, though. We won't. We won't. All right, so let me just ask a question. We're going to talk about the wise men and the worship. They, they obviously left on a long journey for the purpose of, of finding Jesus and worshiping baby Jesus. And I want to ask you a question. Let's go to the first slide. When, when we say the word worship, or you hear the word worship, what, what is worship? Because the way that we use worship in, in just our everyday language sometimes defines for us what it is and can sometimes give us a wrong definition of a word based on the way we use it. I mean, I really, I really struggle with the definition of worship. Because I hear almost every day of my life, baby, I worship the ground that you walk on. <laughs> you know, and, and every day that I get out of bed, I hear, baby, I worship the very ground that you walk on. And it just clouds my mind with incorrect thoughts about what worship is. Actually, it's probably me saying that to my wife, but just for once, I wanted to see what it sounded like for myself. So. Now, um, so we might use it in speech. We call many times, we call churches houses of worship. So sometimes when we say that in our English language, we say a house of worship, we think worship is relegated to only take place within a church building. And then we have all kinds of different terms, like we have worship night. So worship must only take place on worship nights. Or that we have a worship team, or a worship leader, or a worship set, worship songs. So all of those things, and we have baby worship. <laughs> and it's, it's good that kids can worship. So we have, we have all these type of, of, of things that we, we call worship, or we use worship maybe more as an adjective. And we begin to think, okay, well, worship must be something that takes place in a house of worship, on worship night, led by a worship leader during a worship set while we're singing a worship song. That's not what worship is at all, exclusively. That is a part of worship. It's a piece of worship. But it doesn't define everything that worship is or everything that it should be. 
So let's look at a, de a couple definitions. And I didn't put the Hebrew and Greek words up there because nobody remembers them anyway. But I, I did put some definitions uh, that are taken from the Hebrew and Greek about what the word worship means in the Bible. And so, first of all, this is actually from the Greek. It literally means to kiss the hand of. Right? You've seen people bow down and kiss somebody's hand. If you look at the word that it's made of, it means to, to, to kiss the hand of. In, in the Hebrew, it means to bow down or prostrate oneself. Literally means to fall to the knees to the point of going down to touching your head on the foreground. Or your, <laughs> your head on the foreground. Your forehead on the ground. What is a foreground? I don't know what it is. Touch your ground with your forehead. So those are more some, some actions that kind of give uh, you know, actions to the word. It also means to show reverence for, to revere, stressing the feeling of our devotion. And then it goes on to mean to submit to, to serve, or to render service. I actually don't even see singing in that definition, although singing is a way to do those things, worship is not limited to just the time that we sing praises to the Lord. It actually goes on in, in the context of, of submission and rendering service. It even goes on to, to have a, a connotation of obedience. So here's what I want to tell you. Next slide. Worship is, or at least it should be, every daily activity of my life that reveals the worth of the God that I serve. It's every activity of my life that reveals the worth of the God that I serve. So worship, and most of you probably know this, some may not, but worship comes from an old English word that's worth, W-O-R-T-H, worth-ship. Worth-ship. Now I'm not talking with a, a lift. It's worth-ship. It's worth-ship. It means to acknowledge the worth or value of something. To acknowledge the worth of something. To, to, to reflect or honor or show value or worth to someone or something. So that when I think about worship in my life, it's anything I do that reflects or reveals how valuable or how worthy God is to me. So, is what we just did, is that worship? Could be. And you'll see later why I say it could be. When you go to work, is that or should that be worship? Should be. How about when you get cut off in traffic? God bless that man. <laughs> I've tried to start saying that. It's really difficult. Because something else wants to come out. When I'm raising my kids, that's worship. When I respond to my spouse, that's worship. When I do my day-to-day -day profession, my job, that's worship. When I drive the car, when I pick up the trash, when I make my bed, when I mow the grass, 
Anything can be worship if it reflects the worth and value that I have for the God that I serve. So when you think about it like that, and you think that we, we say things, well, we should live a life of worship, and then we think, wow, I do a lot of things that probably don't really qualify as worship. So I, I just want to give you a bigger thinking or a bigger thought process to uh, maybe get your head wrapped around what worship is or, or what it can be, because too often we, we put it in this very small box. And, and, and God never meant it to be like that. He meant for us to, we were created, right? We're created to be worshipers. And so if we're created to be worshipers and to give worship to him, it's important we know a little bit about it and, and not just limit it to a worship night or a worship service or a worship set or even a song. So we're going to look at, let's go to the next slide. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 2, and we'll, we'll read verses 1 through 12, which is the story of the, the wise men. I'll make a couple points as we read through it, but then we're going to read through it, and I'll go back. And I want you to see three things in, in the life, or at least the story of the wise men, that pertains to worship. And uh, as we go through them, I made them, them real easy um, to remember. And uh, you'll, you'll see as we go through, it should be real easy um, to pick up on those. They all start with the letter P. And I don't know why. It seems like everything I do starts with P, but it just kind of happens. I'm not sure why that is. I use P more than anything. But which is three things. And, um, and then the last thing is kind of like three subpoints. So we'll kind of, we'll probably go a little quicker through that. So let's read this. Now after the days, uh, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod. So this took place. Now, how many people have a nativity set at their house? Anybody have a nativity set? Is that still a thing? My wife's after me to get one for the front yard. Matter of fact, I was going to maybe employ Mike Bolt to do that for me because he, he makes those. Right? Is Mike here? Oh, Mike's not here. You guys have to tell Mike he needs to make me a nativity set. Or for my wife. But most nativity sets have, you have Jesus, you have Mary, you have Joseph, You've got the shepherds, you've got an angel or two, and what else do we have in there? The wise men. So this story starts out, says, now after the birth of Jesus, this took place most likely anywhere from six months to two years after Jesus was born. So if, if you think about the wise men being at the, the stable, or actually it was a cave, and, and the manger with baby Jesus, they, they weren't there. Uh, if we read later in the story, it says that they came to the house that they lived in. So, so by the time that they got to Bethlehem, Mary and Joseph were actually living in a home. They were no longer staying in a stable, and Jesus was not in a manger. So I know that messes everybody's nativity up, but, but you know, so be it. So what you can do if you have your nativity, just put the wise men over here to the side. right? They're still, they're still on their way. So you, you can still use it. It said, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, the days of Herod the king. This is Herod the Great. So there was a lot of Herods, but this was Herod the Great. He was a maniac. This guy was crazy. Uh, but before he was crazy, he was, this guy was a, he was a master builder. He built a lot of stuff. He built uh, Caesarea by the sea. He built uh, Masada. 
He, he rebuilt, you guys heard of Herod's temple, he rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. And he even built what's now the only place the Jews can go in, in close to the temple. Anybody know what it's called? The Western Wall. So you call it the Wailing Wall or the Western Wall. He built that wall as a retaining wall to hold the temple up or to set the temple up on the Temple Mount. Now, he was such a good builder. I've, I've, the last time I was in Jerusalem, I saw stones that was the foundation of the Western Wall. Now, anybody ever put up a retaining wall? Right? So you build a foundation of the retaining wall underground. Well, in Jerusalem, because this was built a couple thousand years ago, when you walk on the streets in Jerusalem, you're not really walking where Jesus walked because over time, you know, dirt has piled up and it's actually tens of maybe 20, 30 feet below ground where he actually walked uh, when he was alive. But you can go down underground to the base of this western wall that Herod built and one of the stones, this is just to give you an idea what kind of builder he was, one of the stones is 45 feet long. One stone. It's 13 feet wide, 10 feet tall. It weighs over 500 tons. A million pounds, one stone. Perfectly level, no cracks, no crevices. Imagine that. This guy was just a phenomenal architect. Really great builder. But he was also a psycho. He was a psychopath. He really was. They say he was a short man, so I guess he had like that, that like Napoleon, yeah, Napoleon complex. But he was, I guess, before Napoleon. So maybe it was the Herod complex. But he's a short guy. He always thought everybody was trying to overthrow him. He was paranoid. He, one time, he even heard his kids and his wife were going to take over his throne. He's killed his sons. He killed his wife. There was a saying at the time, they used to say it was safer to be a pig in Herod's house than to be his own son. Because the son, you never know if you're going to be alive the next day or not. This guy was a murderer. He was a tyrant. He was a radical. And so it's in this time period that, that these wise men, under Herod the Great, they're coming... Uh, looking for Jesus. And it goes on to say that Herod was greatly troubled. He was troubled because he thought, here's another attack, here's these guys looking for another king, and this king is probably going to be a threat to my kingdom. So he's troubled about it. Even the people in Jerusalem are troubled about it. They're troubled about it because he's troubled about it. Right? Because what's that old saying? If mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. It's the same thing with the king. If the king ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. So the, the city's in unrest. He's in unrest. He's really disturbed by this whole thing about these guys traveling this distance to say, hey, where's this newborn king? And it says, behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. So a little bit about the wise men. There is no, um, there's no evidence that the wise men were kings. I know we sing the, the Christmas song, we three, the, there weren't three and they weren't kings, so I don't really know where that came from. There was three gifts, which we'll talk about in a little bit, but it said that, that they were magi, uh, is actually the word, which really means magicians. These guys were very learned men. They studied the stars, they studied astrology, they studied scriptures, they, they really studied a lot of everything. They were probably the same people that if you read the book of Daniel, 
Daniel talks about magicians and sorcerers that were called upon to interpret the king's dreams. You guys remember that? These are probably the same kind of guys. And so these magi, uh, or wise men as we call them, they came from the east. Now this could have been Persia. It could have been Mesopotamia. We, we, we don't really know exactly what country they were from, but they're from some country in the east. And they've traveled somewhere between four and 500 miles to get to where they're going. And they've traveled all this distance following a star that they've seen in the sky. Because they've studied these stars and they see something there that says, there's something there we need to follow. So they come all the way from the east following the star. And they get to Jerusalem and they say, verse 2 says, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. So first mention of the word worship in the New Testament takes place in Matthew chapter 2. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him. Next slide. And when he gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, so, so what he does, he, he said, here's, here's these guys showing up. Here's, where's the newborn king of the Jews? And he, so what he does, he gets the, the priests and the scribes, and he said, hey, what's going on here? What, what, what's this talk about a Messiah? What's this talk about a king? And he inquired of them where the Christ or the Messiah was to be born. And they said to him, now they're quoting from Micah, who's an Old Testament prophet, Micah chapter 5. They said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Verse 7. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem. Now, we're not going to look at it. So he says, hey, so he gets this information from, from the, the priests and the scribes. And they say, well, it's in Bethlehem. And then he goes back and calls the wise men in and said, hey, when did this star appear? And it doesn't tell us exactly when it appeared. But we know from later in this chapter, we're not going to look at it. When Herod finds out he was deceived by the wise men, it says he orders the execution of every baby in Bethlehem from two years old and younger. And it says in that same verse, based on the time told him by the wise men. So we know somewhere out, uh, and he may have you know, gone to two years to make sure that he caught everybody in that, but somewhere in that one to two year range is why we say that they appeared after baby Jesus was born. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go, search carefully for the young child, and when you have found him, bring back word to me that I may come and... Now you notice here it says, what's he say he wants to do? He says, bring word back to me that I may come and worship him too. And I didn't highlight worship because it's not really true worship. And we'll talk about that later. And when, he heard the, when they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them. So... He, they, they, go to, they go to Jerusalem following the star. Apparently the star maybe disappeared. I don't know, but they talk to uh, Herod. He talks to the chief priest. They tell him to go to Bethlehem, and they leave, and all of a sudden the star somehow reappears. We don't know how. And he sent them to Bethlehem, said, go search um, carefully. I already read that. Verse 9, when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till they came and stood over where the young child was. Verse 10. 
And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And when they had come into the stable. Now, when they came into the house, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented to him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. So they find Jesus. But after they find Jesus, after they worship Jesus, they actually have a a dream. God appears to them and says, hey, Herod's not the man that you think he is. I don't know what they thought he was, but what he's trying to do is actually kill Jesus. So I want you to go back to your country a different way, and they did. And sometime later, Herod figures out that he was duped. So uh, a couple things I want to look at today. First, let's go to the next slide. The first thing I want to look at is pursuit. Pursuit. And like I said, all these will start with P today. Um, The first one being pursuit. said, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. See, by all earthly standards, these guys had it made. These guys were educated. They they knew scripture, they knew astrology, they knew A lot. They were very learned men, wise men. These guys had privilege. They actually were brought in to see Herod. They had access to to things that other people didn't have access to. These guys were very wealthy, obviously based on the gifts that they brought. Very wealthy people. I said earlier, there was was three gifts. There there was probably an entourage. So there's nowhere in the story that says there was three wise men. But they most likely had an entourage that traveled with them, as most people at that time would have done. So these guys had everything from earthly standards that you think, well, why do they need? Because I think there was something missing. There's something missing that they had to pursue. There's something missing that they had to search for that they had something in their life, they had everything by worldly standards that, that, that appeared that they had it made, but they're still missing that one thing. That one thing that each one of us innately has a desire for. That desire for God. But here's the thing, is you have to pursue God for yourself. You have to pursue God on your own. I can imagine when they left, let's just say it was Persia, they left. They've got four or five hundred miles to go. I can imagine there's got to have been somebody on the camel saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Shut up. Are we there yet? I got to imagine there's somebody saying, this hump in the camel's really rubbing me the wrong way. You know, I've ridden a horse for a couple hours and it gets get sore. And they probably either walked by foot, by camel, both, we don't know. 
It was dusty. It was long, but they persevered. They continued pressing on in pursuit of the king. You have to pursue him on your own. See, Herod, Herod didn't want that. Remember, Herod said, go search for him, find him for me, bring word to me so that I can worship him too. Herod wasn't interested in pursuing Jesus. He was interested in killing Jesus. So here's the thing. It said they sought him, they pursued him, and they found him. Now I realize semantics. Some people say, hey, I found the Lord in such and such a year, and my dad, I know he's here today, he'll say, you can't find the Lord because he's never lost. And I'm like, I, I, I get it, but they found the Lord. Uh, so he wasn't lost, but they were the ones searching for him, and they eventually found him. And here's the promise to you too. When you seek the Lord, guess what you'll find? You'll find him. Because you have a promise in Scripture that says that. Look at the next slide. Jeremiah chapter 29 says, And you will seek me and find me when Bill searches with all his heart for him. When Susan searches for him for me. When Kristen searches for him for me. You will find him when you search for him with all your heart. See, you have to make a decision that I want to pursue Jesus. I can't do it for you. Your spouse can't do it for you. Your friend can't do it for you. But you have a promise that when you seek him, Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. So that if you pursue God the same way they did, you will find him. You will find an intimacy with God. See, just because you have a relationship with God, there's more. Don't think that you've, you've got it all. There's more realms of God yet to be experienced. He desires intimacy with you. So in that pursuit, notice when they're pursuing that Let's look at the next slide. When you're pursuing Jesus, one way or another, he'll guide you to himself. If you say, I want to pursue Jesus, he'll actually guide you. So what are some ways that he guided the wise men? First and foremost was what? It's like this light in the back here. I can't even see. Like, I feel like a bug. It's drawing me in. Everybody turn around and look at that light once. That thing, can you guys see that? It's bright. It's like the star, the star of City Reach. So, the star, we might call them miracles, signs, wonders, right? There are certain signs that you might see that will eventually lead you to Jesus. But here's what I want to tell you don't get hung up worshiping the sign. The sign is not Jesus. See, if you've got to go to the bathroom real bad and you're in unfamiliar territory, what's the first thing? A sign. A sign that says what? The restroom. So, like, huh, huh, where's the bathroom? Ooh, got to go, got to go. So, one time, <coughs> we get off the train 
Uh, my wife and, and uh, uh, we had all the kids with us? My wife and kids, we take this train from London to Paris. I think it's called the Channel because it goes under the English Channel. So we go under the English Channel, we get out in Paris, and what do all ladies have to do when you get off the train? <laughs> They're doing the pee-pee dance, right? So where's the bathroom? So we find the bathroom, and guess what? You got to pay to get in the bathroom. Well, then, I, then go get me some money. So then I, here, here I only had... Uh, I only had British pounds, and you needed euros, and I had to do the money exchange. And so, but we had to find a sign. If you don't find the sign, you're not going to find the bathroom. So what happens, how often you're like, oh, i got to go, I'm going to pee-pee dance. Oh, there's the sign, the sign. Oh. Oh. Oh, I'm so glad I found the sign. No. Signs only point to reality. See, a sign is a reality, but it points to a greater reality. A sign, a miracle, a wonder is great, but it points to a greater reality, Jesus. See, it's the same thing when Paul talked in Colossians chapter 2, verse 17, talking about the law or the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, He says that the law is a shadow of things to come. But the substance, that word literally means reality, the substance is Jesus. So that a shadow is a real thing, right? A shadow is not something fake, it's real. But that shadow, although it's a real thing, points to a greater reality, which is Jesus. So sometimes, sometimes God will lead you by signs and wonders, miracles. You might see a star. You might see a miraculous event. But don't stop at the miracle. Let it lead you to Him. Now, not everybody's like, well, I've never seen a star. Well, just turn around and you'll see one. It's real bright. I've never seen a miracle. Well, once they got to Jerusalem, what did they do? The star stopped. They asked questions. Hey, where is the newborn king? Where is he? And where did the answer come from? God's Word. Sometimes God will lead you with a miracle or a sign. More often than not, He leads you with His Word that His Scripture will point you to Him. See, everything even in the Old Testament points to Jesus in the New. Everything in Scripture points to Jesus. So although you may not see a miraculous sign, we always have the light of God's Word to point us to Him. After they looked at the Word, where did they actually get direction from on how to go to Beth or where to go? It came from a psychopath. Herod was the one that told them where to go. Sometimes God can lead you to Him in the midst of a problematic situation. See, my wife likes to remind me all the time that God spoke to Balaam through a donkey. Right? He doesn't need a sign sometimes. He doesn't always need... His word, sometimes he can speak to you through a psychopath. 
He can speak to you through a, a situation that looks traumatic, and he can make that a good thing. He can turn what looks like a bad situation into a situation that actually leads you to him. So don't think because just because you hit a storm that that storm is not actually pointing you to Jesus. I wasn't going to see. Now that I said that. The disciples on the Sea of Galilee, what did Jesus say to them in John chapter 6? He says, get in the boat and go to the other side. A storm came up, which Jesus eventually rebuked. And when he rebuked it, what did they do? They went to the other side. Clearly, that storm was sent by the enemy. So if a storm impedes your progress from getting to where God's told you to go, we rebuke it. But sometimes God sends a storm. Think of Jonah. If you read Jonah, it says that he ran from God and God sent a storm. And what was the cause, or what was the, 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 the end result of the storm that God sent? It returned Jonah back to Nineveh where God had called him to go. So when a storm is sent by the enemy, it keeps you from God. But when God sends a storm, it's for the purpose of redirecting you back to where he wants you to go. See the difference? Not all the time, but sometimes. So when you pursue God, you will find God. When you pursue a, a deeper intimacy with him, you'll find it because you have a promise in God's word that says, if you seek me, you will find me if you search for me with your whole heart. So there's a pursuit. They searched for, they sought after Jesus. Next, posture. This is a good one. When they came into the house, they saw the young child with Mary... And what'd they do? I'm not going to do 70 push-ups today. Phil, you want to do it? No. You're up for it. It says they fell down. Posture is more about the posture of the heart than it is your physical posture. See, I could be standing here on Sunday morning like this. But if that doesn't reflect the posture of my heart, it's hypocrisy. Your external actions, your external posture should reflect the very posture that's in here. See, they came with the intent to worship Jesus. Anybody ever hear of a comedian named Tim Hawkins? All right, I knew Don would know Tim Hawkins. So I won't even try to, I probably shouldn't even tell you to Google Tim Hawkins because I'll just lose 25% of you right now. But when you get home, Google uh, and look up Tim Hawkins, and he does a little, little uh, spiel on, on basically worship posture. Anybody ever seen that? Yeah, right? So it's like you can tell somebody that's like a novice all the way to an expert by the way they worship. 
And, and so there's some of these, you know, like there's the, uh, you start out with, it's called hold my TV, right? So when you, you, when you finally get your hands out of your pocket and you're like, okay, and, and I was a Baptist. I mean, we never took our hands out of our pockets ever. And it, it was probably to do this, that was sin. So we, we, we kept them in our pockets. I, I got to tell you a Baptist joke because it just came to me. Do you know why Baptists don't have sex standing up? It might lead to dancing. So I grew up in a church, we couldn't dance, we couldn't go to movies, we couldn't do anything, and we definitely couldn't worship in church. That was bad. Lord, I repent right now, I'm sorry. All right, had to get you back off Google. All right, so he says, so here's these worship postures, and you finally get your hands out of your pants. You start with the, I'm going to carry the TV mode, right? You're like this. And then you get a little bit better, and then you go to the widescreen. Yeah, you're like this. And then when you feel a little bit more free in the Lord, then you get up to the, look how big my fish is. Right? I caught a fish, and it was this big. And then you can turn your hands this way, and then it's the, I'm carrying my baby. Right? Katie, Katie's really good with this, carrying her baby. Right here. And then, and then you can kind of graduate. You can get to the, the Mufasa. You guys seen like the Lion King. Right? And then from there, you kind of go to the, it's called dueling light bulbs. <laughs> right? And then if you really want to graduate to being an expert, we get the YMCA. Right? <laughs> And then we can bring it into the Rocky, right? Or the touchdown. This is, but don't try this at home because this is really expert, expert level. So we think about worship posture. None of that matters. None of that matters if it doesn't reflect what's in here. You can jump up and down all day long, run up and down the aisles, fall down here, cry, whimper, whatever. If your heart's not pursuing Jesus, if your heart's not here to worship Jesus, it's fake. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 15. Next slide. We already covered that. It says, what's the posture of your heart? If we don't do it, Externally would generally reflect the attitude of heart. It's not worship, it's hypocrisy. <clears throat> See, often, go to the next line. Often, I think, I think we worship for a result. We worship for a result. If you're worshiping for a result, that's just flattery. You're worshiping God to get from God. See, worship should be not to get a result. Worship should be my response to His worth. There's a difference. Jesus says, you hypocrites, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, we love you, Lord. We praise you, Lord. We bless your name, Lord. You could do that all day long. He says, but their hearts. 
Their heart's far from me. Their worship is a farce. Other translation says your worship is in vain. It's pointless. You just put on a good show. Your neighbor might have been impressed, but that's about it. He says it's about your heart. So you've got to make a decision. Am I going to pursue God? Am I going to pursue intimacy with God? Do I want to make a decision that I'm going to focus all my effort in, in life and look for signs, look in His Word, talk to people, ask questions, and come to Him with a heart that I want, I want more. I want more. I want, to, I, want to, I, want to, I want my life, everything I do to reflect the value that I see in you, Jesus. Next. Finally, presents. Everybody likes presents at Christmas, right? I got a pretty cool present this year. It was a weighted blanket. Anybody ever used my weighted blanket? My wife put it on me the first night. <laughs> I was stuck. I was like, you'll do anything to keep me on my side of the bed. <laughs> Couldn't move. I quit using it already. <laughs> and she yesterday, she brings out the instructions and says, you got to work up to it. You got to do seven days down to your waist and then you pull it up a little. I'm like, I'm done. It says that when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. See, often we're pursuing God, we're worshiping God to see what we can get from him. When I truly worship God, it's going to evoke a response not from him, but from who? From me. So I'm not getting from God, I'm giving to God. And it says that they took their treasury, the place where everything they had in life that was valuable was stored, and what they do? Opened it. They opened it. And they said, here it is, Lord. This is what we have. It's yours. It says that they gave him gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And traditionally, that when people look at the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, of course, gold... Was, was the way that wealth was determined at that time. The more gold you had, the wealthier you were. were. And, and that when they gave him gold, it spoke of Jesus' kingship or his royalty. That the frankincense, which was incense that was burnt in the temple, had to do with him being a high priest or spoke of his deity. And, and that the myrrh, which was an anointing oil that was put on the body to embalm dead people, was spoke of his, his soon-to-be death or that he would be our Savior or it spoke of his humanity. So we see the gold for his royalty, frankincense for his deity, myrrh for his humanity. But I want to look at it a little bit different in these last few minutes. I just want to touch on each one of these. And I want you to look at these from the point, not only what they spoke to giving them to Jesus, but what they represent from our standpoint, the giver. When we give to him. 
If I think about the greatest worshiper in the Old Testament, who would come to mind? David. So David, when we think of worship in the Old Testament, David is the epitome of worship. David also understood at the time he was the wealthiest person in the world, but he also understood that everything he had came from God. That God was his source, God was his supply. He also knew that God wanted him to build a temple, but that he wouldn't be the one to build it, his son Solomon would. And while David was still king, he started putting away silver and gold to be used to build the temple with. In today's dollars, he put away $50 billion toward building a temple. On the day he passes the throne to his son Solomon, he blesses the Lord, 1 Chronicles 29, praises the Lord, acknowledges that the Lord is the source of everything he has, and then if you read the rest of the chapter, he gives another $6 billion on the same day. He says, O Lord our God, even this material which we have gathered to build a temple to honor you, this is is a form of worship, To honor your holy name comes from you. It all belongs to you. I know, my God, that you examine... What's he examine? Our hearts. And rejoice when you find integrity there. You know I've done all this with good motives. You don't have to give $50 billion. You don't have to give $50,000. God never looks at the amount. God looks at the cost. Right? When Jesus is watching the widow and people casting money in the treasury, it says that the rich people came and gave out of their surplus. Eh, give God a tip. Give him 20%, give him 10%. I got extra, here you go. But it said the widow came and put in her two mites. And Jesus said that she's given more than them all because she's given everything that she has. So that God never equates dollars with the size of the gift. He looks at what it costs the giver. David, I don't know how much money David had, but he gave a great gift. But I think the important thing is here, he gave it with the right heart. He knew that it came from God. He said, everything I have to give you is yours, and I have an opportunity now to honor you with what you've given me. Frankincense. Frankincense in the Old Testament and also in the New, we said it was burnt in the temple at the altar, but it also represents prayer. It represents what comes out of your mouth. Praise, prayer, singing, all that could be incorporated into that. David, a worshiper, was also a man of prayer. He's also a man of praise. He says in Psalm 141, let my prayer be set before you as incense. When you look at at the revelation John had of the the temple uh, in in the book of Revelation, he says that uh, the four and twenty creatures, each having a lamp, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So there's a connection between incense and prayer. And that what we say, what we pray, what we praise God about, what comes out of our mouth, should be a declaration of His worth. See, if you look at what you, I want you right now, I want you to consider, I want you to consider what you've given God this last year from your possessions. 
Is that a reflection of how you value him? Is it a good reflection based on what you've given God? Does that reflect your value and what he means to you? His value. Your praise, your prayer. Do your prayers reflect what God means to you? I often think sometimes, I I think in the Garden of Eden, you know, if you think about your prayer life, what do most of our prayers consist of? Gimme, 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 gimme. I need, I need, I need. Uh, Please, please, please. Right? So if we took all that out, what's left? (laughs) Not much, right? Well, I entered his gates with thanksgiving, but then I went right to me, 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 need, 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 please, please, please. Did you ever think about what Adam and Eve's prayer life was like? I think about this sometimes. I'm living in an environment where everything has already been pre-provided for me, pre-anticipated, supplied, everything I need. What did they pray for? I think their prayer life was nothing but praise and thanks and exclaiming how great their God was and is. If you think about it, God came to restore that very thing. He came to bring back what He initially set up in the garden and complete that through Christ. And in Christ, He's already provided for everything you ever need. I really think we need to focus on not just what we want. God wants us, He knows what you need. He wants you to ask. But I want you to focus your prayer life on declaring how good He is. He's a good father. He's our provider. He's our healer. Finally, myrrh. Myrrh was used to prepare bodies that died. I want you not to think about giving your money, your possessions, your stuff, whatever God's put in your hand, what comes out of your mouth, but this, right? What's Romans 12.1 say? It says, Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all He has done for you. So right, he's saying, I'm not asking you to give your body so you can get something from God. I'm asking you to give your body to God because of what He's already done. Let your body be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind He will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship Him. So worship is everything that we do. It should be. It should be every activity in life that reflects how much you value God. Practically, we can do that with what He's put in our hands. It could be possessions. It could be a place of influence. It could be a platform. It could be money. It could be status. It could be whatever. Am I using what He's given me to reflect the value that He is and He has? Am I using what comes out of my mouth to reflect His value and worth? And am I allowing my body to be used in a manner that reflects the value of what He's already done for me? Let's stand.